Good morning. I'm Dave Marsh, and my wife Chris and I have been attending here. We started, I think our first visit was October of last month, and uh, they asked me to go ahead and read our scripture for today. It's in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. As he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After he said these things, he spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva, and spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he left washed and came back seeing his neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said isn't this the one who used to sit begging some said he's the one others were saying no but he looks like him he kept saying I'm the one so they asked him then how were your eyes opened he answered the man called Jesus made mud spread it on my eyes and told me Go to Siloam and wash. So when I went and washed, I received my sight. Where is he? They asked. I don't know, he said. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Dave. If you could get your Bibles out and turn to John, John chapter 9, I'd love for you to join me there. Um, if this is your first time uh, here, I don't always cry. I had a particular nickname at my last church in dealing with my emotions, and uh, I'm glad that it hasn't found its way down here yet, but some other nicknames have shown up, and I don't, don't particularly appreciate those either. <laughs> but John chapter 9 is where we're going to be today, and uh, I got to say, like, I feel like I'm still recovering after last weekend. Uh, how many of you were able to attend at least one of the things that we had last weekend, Sunday morning, Friday night? Yeah, it was a really incredibly powerful time, uh, very moving. Um, and it just kind of always puts me on uh, my knees before the Lord in gratitude because of what I get to do. Uh, like, uh, I, I don't know uh, what y'all think, but uh, I absolutely love my job. Like, I love that this is the role that I have, uh, that I get to do full-time pastoral ministry. And, and what that means is, is that I'm freed up to go be with people in their best moments, right? Like, I, I love getting to do that. Like, in the highs of highs, right, in life, I get to go be involved in that with uh, a new baby being born and, like, just praying God's favor over that child or, or going to get to see one of our star basketball players hoop it up as a freshman, right? Like, just a really cool thing that I get to do as a pastor, and uh, that does not exclude, in fact, I would say very much it includes, that not only do I get to be a part of the highest of highs, I also get to uh, join in in the worst moments. Uh, that as a pastor, I get to go and be involved in some of the lowest moments in people's life. Um, that's kind of like my inclination. I, I, I don't know what it is about me. I'd, I'd much rather go sit with them and not say anything. I'd rather be with them than to just avoid the awkwardness of the pain. 
that they might be experiencing. And so I, 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 I often get called into some of the worst moments and dealing with one of some of the hardest things that people go through in life. And there's a, there's a story um, once where I uh, was called into uh, the hospital uh, up in northeast Pennsylvania. There was a couple in our church who had a daughter. She was married. She was in town for the weekend, and uh, she, had a, she was pregnant, probably maybe after, I think she was at least 20 weeks along. And, um, and she started having some, some issues, some problems. They take her to the local hospital. She's far from home, and her husband's not even with her. And so I get to go and sit with her. I, I, I get to go with her family and, and sit with her uh, while they're finding out that the diagnosis just doesn't look good. Uh, that that the, she's been diagnosed with something that uh, threat, will continue to threaten the life of that baby uh, while it's in the womb. And I remember sitting there at the end of the, end of the bed and um, this young mom, uh, first time mom, was just kind of in tears and and asked, asked me the question, um, why is God judging me? She asked, did I do something wrong to deserve this? Now, uh, I'm sure you can probably immediately relate in some of the circumstances you may have gone through in life. You go through this uh, this serious, deep affliction, it comes on you uncontrollably. You have no authority to turn it back. You in, enter into this really painful moment or season of suffering. Uh, it, it can be whatever it is, right? Like it, it can be, uh, you, you, you get the phone call from the doctor saying, yeah, it's, it's cancer. Or you get the phone call from the police officer, your, your, your daughter was in an accident, Right, like it can be all these devastating moments of affliction, and we can immediately think, Did I like did I do something, God? Like, are you mad at me? Like, are you are you angry with me? Like, what did I do wrong? Why are you judging me? And and this isn't abnormal, right? I think it's skewed, but it's not an abnormal understanding of who God is. It's a, it's a uh, what we can call it a performance-based favor mentality about God, performance-based, right? In the way that it, you might heard it as legalism in one sense, but, but basically performance-based favor is this understanding that, that if you do really well, if you're very careful to keep God's commands, uh, he, will, he will bless you, you will find prosperity, you won't, you won't enter into suffering, life will be easy for you if you just continue to obey Right? So, so, for example, you could be uh, waiting on the phone call about some promotion you might be getting, and so you're very carefully like, not looking at pornography. Or you can be uh, trying to find someone that you're going to join yourself with for life, and you're like, well, now I'm, not, I'm, I'm just going to avoid these temptations. I'm going to try to make sure that I don't mess this up with my sin, and God ju- judge me because of it. On the flip side, we can also go the other way, right, with this idea that, that if we sin, if we stumble along the way, if we fail to obey God's word, that then we will be judged by God. We will find affliction waiting for us at the end of that road. We will suffer. Like this mom who thought that she was being judged by God because she did something wrong, that the life of her baby was being threatened because she did some sin sometime. 
you can kind of hear that perspective in our story today, can't you? They ask that very question, who sinned, his parents or him, that caused him to be born blind? Who sinned? Whose fault was it? We've got to point blame somewhere. You can hear it in the story, and it's a pretty typical understanding of God, right? If you're good, you get blessings. Be bad, you get judgment. And here's the hard part about it. In one sense, that's not wrong. In, in, in one nature of the conversation, it's partially true. Right? But it's going to take a lot of carefully nuanced talk in order for us to understand how that works and how it doesn't work. And so it's going to, have us, it's going to require us to think in specific categories about suffering. Because no suffering is the same. No affliction is sourced from the same cause in one sense, but in another sense it is. And so in order for us to even get into this text, I do think that we need to kind of take a journey through God's Word first to get to this text. Because here's what we can be confident of, right? And, and I think you guys would agree with this. I hope at least. We are able to believe that this world is fallen, that suffering and death are in this world because of the original sin, right? Back in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve were tempted with a lie. They believed it. They ate the fruit. And suffering and affliction tore through the fabric of creation, right? It makes sense. So I think we can agree with that. The reason why we have natural disasters, why cancer and death are things, is because of that original sin. So, so let's just be very clear when we say that. Some sin comes from that, or some suffering comes from that, right? In fact, all suffering comes from that understanding of sin. Are you tracking with me so far? So we have that category, that there would be no suffering if there was no original sin in the garden. Another category that we need to think about when we think about suffering is that sometimes there are most sin, most forms of disobedience come with their own natural consequences as a result. So I, I, I would just put out there, for example, the, the, the habit of drunkenness, right? If you continue to drink, your liver will fail, right? My uncle passed away in 2018 from liver failure because he was an alcoholic. He continued to get drunk, and because of that, he was afflicted. So there's, there's natural consequences that come with that. Gluttony would be another one, right? The, the consuming of food uh, uh, to the point where it's controlling you, and you continue to find uh, your health beginning to fail. In fact, congestive heart failure is the most common response. So you understand, first, that first category, of course, all suffering and sin has original or originated in the fall. But then we also have this category of suffering because of sin, simply because it's a natural byproduct of it. You sleep around, yeah, you might find your marriage failing. There's some natural consequences to that. But here's what Scripture says elsewhere, that there's a few more categories, that, that sometimes suffering and affliction can be given by God as a design for punishment. 
So I've got a few examples. Uh, one example would be in Numbers chapter 12 when Miriam and Aaron rebel against Moses. They're like, why has he got to be the only one who gets the favor of the Lord? We're just as good. And then all of a sudden, God has some words, some strong words with them. And Miriam gets struck down with this skin disease. It turns her skin white as snow. Aaron doesn't get it. I don't know why. I think it's because he's a high priest. He has to serve in the temple or else sacrifices would not be made. But Miriam gets this judgment, this punishment for her rebellion. We also see it in Acts 5. Now, this is going to be hard because this is New Testament. This is the God of the New Testament, which, by the way, they're the same. In Acts 5, before the church, Ananias and Sapphira go to Peter, and they lie. They lie about how much they got. They lie about how much they gave. And consecutively, the Lord strikes them down. And it causes fear in the church. And that's new covenant, by the way. We also see in 1 Corinthians 11 this example. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11 is Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. And in chapter 11, he's writing about the Lord's Supper and instructing us on how to partake. And one of the things that he calls out was that they were taking it in an unworthy manner. So you got Jerry over there getting drunk on the wine. You've got uh, Denise over here who's just eating ahead of everybody else, right? Like, just taking it in an unworthy manner. And Paul calls it out. And this is, this is actually what he, what he says. I, I just feel like I've got to put the words up for you. This is why, that's the context. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep, which is the Christian way of saying died. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. So we see here that there's a kind of affliction that comes on in our lives that can be simply because God is judging. God is punishing. That's a hard pill to swallow. But we also see that Scripture introduces us to a category of suffering where, where the affliction, the pain, the point of suffering is actually used by God as a form of discipline not punishment. Because you know the two are very different, right? Wrath is punishment. Discipline is love. Right? And so with that, we see in Scripture that there's, there's this time where affliction is brought into people's lives, people who God loves deeply and have been purchased with the blood of Christ, and they are suffering affliction as a form of discipline, of, of edification, of making sure that they grow up in their faith. Because again, we've got to understand that discipline and wrath are not the same thing. The Lord disciplines those He loves. So if you're under the hand of God's discipline, He loves you. And so here's where we see some of that. One example is when Paul writes to, second Corinth, or to the church in Corinth again in his second letter in chapter 12. This is what he says. He has all these revelations, right? Great revelations of, of heaven. He says, therefore, so that I would not exalt myself. In other words, that I would not become prideful and say, look at me, I'm better. A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me so that I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that, he would, that it would leave me. But the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected, or the word is put on display in your weakness. 
So Paul has this thorn in the flesh, right? This messenger of Satan. We don't know exactly what it was. But either way, it was designed by the Lord to keep Paul humble as a form of discipline. And it made sure that people knew that when Paul was weak, God's grace was strong. But it's, this isn't the only time we see later on in the book of James that James talks about suffering and it's producing maturity, right? He says this, Consider it all joy, a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Guys, that's the second verse in the book of James. And you're thinking, whoa, 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 James, you're starting off a little strong. Save that for the end, right? Consider it joy when I experience various trials. Why? Because we know that the testing of our faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, it's designed by God to mature you through the pathway of endurance. So all of that, right? all of these different categories of understanding suffering, because they're not all the same, of, of understanding our afflictions, they're, they're not all sourced from the same thing, although we could say that they're originally from the fall, but the idea that every form of suffering, every form of affliction is always absolutely because of specific individual sins in an individual's life or their parents' life is not the case always in Scripture. So one example, uh, think about Job, right? This man in one day uh, loses everything but his wife. And some would say she would have been better gone and rather have the kids because she was just nagging him the whole time, right? You have Job who loses all of his wealth, all of his possessions, and all of his kids are, are killed all in one day. His, he, he tears his clothes. His wife tells him, just give up on your God. And he says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then his friends come in. And they start to try to counsel him. And they sit with him quietly for, I think, seven days. I could be wrong. Which is great. They tear their clothes with him, and they cover themselves in ash, and they weep with him. But then after that time, they start to try to counsel him. And their counsel is this. Uh, Job, you, you, you got you to gotta do some repenting. Clearly, clearly you've done something wrong. Right? Like, uh, God doesn't do this to people he loves. He doesn't allow this to happen to those who are his. If you, if you were righteous, this wouldn't have happened to you. But clearly you've sinned, so that explains it, right? And Job the whole time is saying, no, I, I don't know. I, I, I've, I've made sacrifices. I've repented before the Lord. I, I don't have sinned that I need to confess that I'm aware of. And at the end of the story, God comes in, like humbles Job gives a love tap to the friends. How wicked of counsel you gave. And he vindicates Job. Job hadn't done anything wrong. And yet this suffering was very real and very present and very deep. Job hadn't done anything to deserve it. In fact, it was his goodness that merited it, if you would go so far to say. So we have Job, and then this is a New Testament example. Our passage today, John chapter 9. Jesus and his disciples 
Remember, we just finished chapters 7 and 8 where uh, there's dialogue at the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, and he's talking to uh, the Jews there, and, and there's just debate, there's confusion, uh, there's hatred even, there's a threat on Jesus' life. They, they try to make an attempt at him, and he escapes, he ghosts them. But in the dialogue that Jesus has with these Jews, we see Jesus say some pretty profound, deep things. One of them in John 7, he says, Come to me, all of you who are thirsty, and I will give you living water. It will be like a well springing up in your soul. And then later on in 8.12, he says, I am the light of the world. And then in later on in 8.50, or 8.31, he says, If you abide in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So Jesus is saying, hey, here, you want some living water? Hey, you want some light in your life? Hey, you, 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 you want some freedom? Kill them. That doesn't make sense, does it? Stone them to death. And so Jesus leaves, and we don't know the time frame between the end of that section and our story today. But we do know that he's walking along. And the disciples see not a person born blind needing mercy, but a theological confusing point that needs clarifying. And they ask him, they see this man, John notes that he was born blind. And in verse 2, the disciples say, teacher, Jesus, rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Who done it? Because you know we've got to point the finger at someone. Do you realize how majorly significant this story is in our understanding of the categories of suffering we go through in life? It is so significant because what's Jesus' answer? When we want the answer, when we want to be able to blame someone else for the suffering that we go through, what does Jesus say here? Neither of them. It wasn't the parents or the man. This blindness was not caused by specific sins that were committed by this man's parents or by the man himself. And all the parents went, whew. You know how significant this is? Because this is saying that not all suffering is wrath. Not all suffering is actual like judgment from God. There's a category where suffering is just simply suffering. You can experience suffering and it not be because you messed up or because your parents were bad. Now again, that's one of the categories of the many. Because you could have a parent who struggled so bad with their anger that you are a victim of abuse and you have these tendencies, right? Like This is an entirely different category that we're thinking about here. You can experience suffering and it not be because anybody particularly sinned. You know, when, um, when my wife and I uh, were trying to get pregnant in the early years of our marriage, uh, we, we did lose three kids in the womb um, early on. And I think it was probably after the second one where I start started to, uh, in my prayer, find myself asking God, God, am I causing this? Is my sin killing my babies? Is my sin doing this? Is my failures bringing about my children's death? And I'll tell you what, we got pregnant a third time, and I tried to be as holy as possible. 
tried to forsake all forms of temptation, all sin, and we still lost that baby. When we got pregnant a fourth time, by now we were up in northeast Pennsylvania, and I was pastoring a church there, and, and the church had been aware of some of our uh, infertil or our struggles with, uh, with losing children in the womb, and there was a lady there who had a particular kind of faith um, structure that I wouldn't quite agree with, um, and she came up to us, and, uh, and she just kind of told us, you know what, if you don't have enough faith, your baby will die. She said, you, you have to have faith. If you, if you lack in faith, you'll lose this baby. So, if we didn't believe God enough, God was going to let our baby die? If, if we didn't have enough faith, then God, God wasn't going to do the miracle? God wasn't going to save our kid? Is that what you're telling me? Well, I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. In fact, I see the opposite. Think about the story when the disciples are on the boat. The boat's rocking. The storm's raging. Jesus is sleeping. The disciples are crying. Save us! We're going to die! And Jesus kind of just gets up, and he speaks peace to the storm, calms the raging sea. And he looks to the disciples, and he says, You of little faith, why didn't you believe? Was the miracle predicated on their faith or the amount of it? Was, it, was Jesus like, whoa, 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 I'm not going to do it until you believe in me more? No. No, we, we can get so caught up in this performance-based understanding of blessing and suffering when there's clear scriptural evidence that sometimes suffering is just suffering. It's not caused by your failures. But here's the thing. What's really hard is that we're not privy to that information. We're not given the authority or infinite knowledge to know the intentions of God's designs for our lives. We're not, we're not keen into that. Regardless, though, isn't this such a relief that sometimes your suffering is just that and that it's not because you've sinned not because someone else has sinned it's just there and by the way uh, that little baby that we were pregnant with for fourth time is Joel so tell me about that and that included many nights where my wife and I were tears asking the Lord to save her And then we had another one. I don't. Isaac's came along somehow. <clears throat> but this story keeps going. And and again, I'm going to remind you of something that Jesus previously said, as we press on into the story of what Jesus says. Remember, Jesus pre previously just said that he's offering living water, that he is the light of the world, and that he offers freedom. Right? Keep that in mind. Look at what he says in verse three. 
This affliction isn't because of specific sins done by the parents of this man, or, 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 or this man himself. It exists so that God's works might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the what? Light of the world. Can you, can you hear what he's doing? He's connecting what is about to happen. We know it's the miracle. He's connecting what's about to happen as a revelation, as a manifestation of what he already declared about himself in the previous chapters. Watch it. He says, I am the light of the world previously. And here he says this is connected to his nature as being the light of the world because you know the world is trapped in darkness. The world has been subjected to suffering, right? And his light comes in and it needs to shine while he's still in the world and it pushes back and turns back the darkness. And so that's why this story is called the sixth sign. These signs, these miracles were, or, or some of them, like he was driving out the, the Pharisees of the, the temple. That wasn't a miracle. That was prophetic, right? Some of these signs, all of them actually, were, were signs revealing things about his nature. That he doesn't just simply talk the talk, he walks it out too. And so here's what we see. We see him talk about his nature, and then we see him do his nature. Look at verse 6. After Jesus said these things, he spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva, and spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he told them, wash in the pool of Siloam, Siloam and, which means sent. So we'll pause here for a second. Jesus' ministry to the blind in this day is quite comprehensive. It's quite a common thing that he did was minister to blind people. He healed many different blind people and he healed many blind people in many different ways. So for example, in Luke 18, you have blind Bartimaeus and all he does, all Jesus does to heal him is just speak words. We see in Matthew 9 that these two blind men that were in Galilee, that Jesus actually touches their eyes and they leave seeing. We also see later on in Mark chapter 8, this blind man in Bethsaida, Jesus spits on his eyes, laid hands on him, offers healing. The guy gets partial sight back. Then Jesus places his hands on his eyes and speaks healing, and then the man sees everything clearly. Can you just imagine all of these guys getting together after the miracle? These guys, this anonymous group of blind men healed by Jesus support group. And they get together. And they're trying to figure out how to do life now that they can actually see. And they're sharing their stories about how Jesus healed them. Uh, this guy, oh yeah, he just spoke. Oh yeah, he just touched my eyes. And our guy here hears all of their stories and he's like, why did I get the mud spit? couldn't he have done something else? Like, I got the, the, the spittle with mud. I definitely drew the sword into the straw on that one. That's kind of, kind of gross if you think about it, right? It's not something you necessarily would want to say in your testimony. Yeah, Jesus healed me. I can see now. How'd he do it? Um, he spit on the ground and made some mud and put it on my eyes. He sent me to the pool. 
Yeah. Why all the differences between all the methods? Why would Jesus have so many different ways in which he heals blindness? Well, easy. So that we wouldn't get confused about who really did the healing. Because, you know, I mean, I, I don't know about you. I, I feel like for me, I'm really good at missing the point. And my wife could tell you that for sure. If Jesus healed all blindness and every affliction the same way, we would try to copy the method thinking that that's what ultimately healed, when in reality, it's not the method, it's the man. And so here we have a unique case where Jesus spits into the dirt, he makes some mud and puts it on the man's eyes, tells him to go wash in the specific pool, that was the pool called, you want to try it? Siloam, Siloam, you might say it with a, is that a long eye, homeschool teachers? Okay. I know English. So this is a pool. Siloam is a pool that's south, southwest of the city of Jerusalem. And, and it gets its water sent to it by the spring of Gihon, right? And, and what's so crazy is that it, this is the very pool where uh, they, the Jews drew the water out of for the, the, the ceremonies of the festival of booths. So the festival that they're celebrating just in the chapters right now and previous to this, had water significantly involved in it, and this is where they get those waters from. And there's history about this pool. In fact, the prophet Isaiah writes about it in chapter 8. I'll just put that up on the screen for you. You can just write the reference next to it. And you know what this passage does? It introduces a very strong irony. He's talking about the Jews. The Lord says, these people rejected the slowly flowing water of Shiloh, which is the same pool. Isaiah says, the Jews reject the waters of Siloam. And here we find out in this passage later on after this healing that the Jews reject Jesus. Because, you know, what's so crazy is throughout the book of John, at least over 21 times, Jesus is referred to as the one sent from the Father. And did you notice here how this man's healing involved, in part, his simple faith that expressed itself through obedience? If he didn't believe Jesus was actually capable of healing, he wouldn't have gone and washed, right? Oh, come on, he just put mud on my eyes. Jeez, let me get out of here. No, but this kind of faith overflowed itself with obedience. And it got him up, it led him to the pool of scent, and he washed. And what happens? He sees. Verse 7, at the end of verse 7, like, like it's just there and gone, he comes back seeing. You see how quickly that got mentioned? It's like it's just normal. Like, yeah, Jesus is here. Ah, that's normal. Blind men seeing. What a, no biggie, right? This is the affliction that plagued this man's whole life. It's the one affliction that kept him bound in shackles of darkness and just deep confusion and not even able to perceive or understand anything of the world around him unless it was told to him. All of this affliction, this major life-defining affliction, suddenly gone. Did you notice how all of this is ultimately pointing to the man, to Jesus? He uses 
waters in the pool of Siloam because he is offering living water. He brings light to this man's eyes as he is himself the light of the world. He breaks the chains of affliction and bondage as he offers freedom. And whom the Son sets free is free indeed. So guys, this whole miracle, this sign, this sixth wonder in the Gospel of John is designed to express all that Jesus was saying about himself in the previous chapters. That he is the one offering living water, he's the one who is the light of the world, and he is the one offering freedom. So he doesn't just talk the talk in the crowds, he walks it out. This blind man experiences the satisfaction of the living water. He experiences the glory of the light of the world. He experiences the chain-breaking freedom of the sun. And Scripture story goes on to show that he starts testifying about it. The neighbors get all sorts of confused, right? Is that really him? Nah, it can't be. It's got to be somebody who just looks like him, right? No, he's like, it's me. It's really me. And then they ask, how? How did this happen? And what does he say? The man called Jesus. Let me introduce you to him. You know, what's funny is this guy never even saw Jesus. He never knew what Jesus looked like. He only knew him by name. This man called Jesus, but he knew it was him. He's why. You know, I love, uh, uh, how many of you have watched uh, any of the series The Chosen? Yeah, if you haven't yet, I would really encourage it. Uh, I love Mary's testimony about how she describes what happened. She says, I was one way, and now I am completely different. And the thing that happened in between was him. It's Jesus. He's the living water. He's the light of the world. He's the son who sets free. And so with this story, right, we're going to start kind of coming down, landing the plane as we go. With this story, you know what this does for us? Is that it opens up a new category of how we understand suffering and affliction in our lives. So we've already said that this story is giving evidence that Old Testament already showed that sometimes suffering isn't directly because you've sinned. It's not because you've, you've, you've become so uh, outrageously abandoned to a licentious lifestyle. That suffering can just be suffering. So this story proves that. Again. But let's keep going with the story then. Because this introduces us to another category of understanding our, of our affliction. Because this affliction was there. It wasn't given to him by God. It was allowed by God. But it was in his life, not because someone sinned or he sinned, but it was there for God's works to be displayed in him. In other words, some of your afflictions are just waiting for Jesus to show up. Some of your ailments, some of your deepest pains and afflictions in your life, even the ones that you may have come into this world with, can be in your life presently simply because God is waiting to show off who he is. 
He's waiting to show who he is through the healing of your affliction. It's just waiting for that. Like, isn't that awesome? Like, there may be a day coming when Jesus heals you of a life-defining affliction to point people to his nature. Jesus can use your afflictions for that. And I can't think of a better leverage, a better purpose for any kind of suffering that we go through than to point to exactly who Jesus is. Now, at this point, you might be like, well, Scotty B., uh, you still believe that God heals people? Absolutely. Why on earth would we pray, Lord, would you heal this person if we didn't believe the Lord was actually going to heal? You know, I, I uh, was at a, a graduation for Love, Inc. graduates going through the Change Your Life class on, on Tuesday night. And uh, I'm on the board there, so in uh, Ethan, our children's ministry pastor, our family ministry pastor, works there too. And so when I got there, we said hi. He was dressed to the nines. I was dressed like a bum, usually how it works. And, and so he told me, he said, hey, uh, you're not on call tonight. If you just want to be a back row Baptist and sit in the back, you can. So I was like, I'll do that. So I went to the very back of the sanctuary, and it was a blessing. I see why you guys like it so much. Because I'm always sitting in the front. So anyways, so I'm sitting in the back, which means I can kind of see the whole crowd and lots of people there. And about two-thirds of the way into the ceremony, um, this young lady, about eight rows up, uh, starts to convulse violently. And, uh, and so I, we, I kind of get up. Uh, one of the directors gets up. Another lady gets up. And we go to her and and one of the directors said, she's, she's prone to seizures. Uh, she has on her card, don't call the ambulance, but, but we just need to pray. And so uh, I, I was like, I'll pray. And so I said, everybody, hey, we're going to pray. I didn't care about the ceremony. And so we begin to pray, and people start praying for this young mom, this young lady who is seizing. And like two seconds into our prayer, peace. Like just... She's still. And it's like, you, I, you know, I, I kind of come from the background, and in some ways I still have that paranoia of, well, what if it was just the timing of it? Like, what if it just naturally stopped that way? Like, what if it was just circumstantial? Or, you know what, maybe we could just kind of have the kind of simple faith that would be willing to believe that God still does that. Could we, could we, could we have the simple faith that when we pray for something and it, it's there, it's like, Oh, you, you did it. Okay, I'll take that. I mean, can, can we as a church be okay with the idea that God actually wants to heal people? Can we be okay with that? I, I, I think the reason why we aren't in some ways is because we're scared of what may, it, it may mean if he says no. I love how Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, and I realize there might be some contextual issues, when they were heading to the fire because of their standing for their faith in Yahweh, um, they said, our God can deliver us, our God will deliver us, but even if he doesn't, he's still worthy. I think too many of us are scared that if he says no at this time, that might mean that we've been cut off from his love or his favor. 
because we're performance-based. So we don't ask. But if he says no or not now, it's not because he stopped loving you. Remember, the promise is nothing can separate you from the love of God, not even you. Maybe, maybe he's actually wanting to show off his grace and power through your affliction and suffering, and that's why he says, not right now. But, but just because we might hear not yet or no should, should not keep us from actually just still humbly offering to the Lord requests for healing of our afflictions. To bring them to him through prayer because he's, he's our father. I don't know about you, but if my son or my daughter are in deep affliction, I want them to come tell me because I want to do everything to remove them from it. Unless it has a specific design for their good. You know, James the apostle, he says, we have not because we ask not. Now, sometimes he goes on to say that sometimes we don't have because when we do ask, we're asking for really selfish motives and that's just not good. But regardless, if this man's affliction was in his life for the purpose of God's works to be displayed in his life, yours can too. So what I want to ask for you today is would you be willing to pray for healing over your afflictions? Would you be willing to hold to a simple kind of faith to pray for healing that Jesus actually wants to heal to show who he is? And would you be willing to be okay even if he says not yet or no? In fact, when you think about when we pray for healing from suffering and affliction, the answer will only be yes or just wait. Because eventually all pain and suffering is done away with. And I realize that when we embrace this kind of understanding of asking the Lord humbly just to heal as a good father would want to, it might get a little uncomfortable because you, I, I have sometimes done this, right? Sometimes you go to pray for somebody who's back and you just kind of pray, Lord, would you heal this back? God, we pray that you would speak life into it. And you just keep praying and then you're done. Did it work? No? All right, we'll pray again. And we just keep going back and forth, right? It can get uncomfortable, but my goodness, trusting that the Lord, asking like the, the widow to the judge again and again and again, 